Good morning, Deep Run family. This morning, we will be reading from the English Standard Version. Um, feel free to join along with me. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, whom spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I will to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable to God today. We are studying themes of hope in classic Christmas carols. And today we sang, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Just curious, show of hands, familiar to any of us? Okay, most, uh, most people uh, have, heard, have heard of it. It's actually an American, it's, it's an American Christmas carol. Its, its roots go back to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the celebrated New England poet uh, from the middle of the 1800s, who penned these words. It wasn't originally to be sung, it was a poem. He penned these words on Christmas Day in 1863. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, Avery and I were talking this week. I, I, I told her I love uh, the Frank Sinatra recording of this song. It's a different melody, but about 100 years after uh, Longfellow wrote this poem, Frank Sinatra recorded it. Uh, and it's just, just a real stirring rendition. It's, it's my favorite. And, you know, by the way, the, the, the sound of Frank Sinatra at Christmas time, for me, just kind of melts me. I, I'm kind of a sucker for the Christmas culture uh, in America. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, I hear that like classical holiday music, you know, that classic holiday music, and I just kind of melt. I really love that stuff. Um, there's something, though, about uh, American Christmas culture. Not the meaning of Christmas, I mean Christmas culture in our society. It's very powerful. It's very alluring, and, and I enjoy it, but at times I, I have to be careful that I'm not enjoying it for the wrong reasons or for temporary reasons. For instance, I, I think that the Christmas culture in our society 
You know, whether you're listening to Bing Crosby or Ella Fitzgerald or something, uh, or Frank Sinatra on the radio, the Christmas culture in America, it, it offers us permission to forget our troubles for a couple of weeks. Think of the movie Elf, right? If, if, if grumpy old James Caan can, can sing for a moment on Christmas Eve, right, and get Santa's sleigh to, uh, to, to gear, you know, to, to go into gear and start flying, then any of us can get over our grumpiness for a little while and just think happy thoughts and forget about this year and look forward to hopefully a better new year. And that's really kind of what the Christmas culture in America sometimes boils down to, is we enjoy ourselves, but when you really listen to the message of that culture, it's saying, let's put aside our differences and forget about our troubles and just hope in a better new year. Have, have you ever tried that? And, and how did it work? Henry Wadsworth Longfellow uh, was not forgetting his troubles on Christmas Day in 1863. Uh, we wouldn't have carols like this if the writers of a poem like that listened to that invitation to forget your troubles at Christmas time. Longfellow and all Americans at the time were in the midst of the humanitarian crisis and domestic devastation that we all now know as the Civil War. Longfellow himself was enduring his own grief. In the midst of a war, he had, been, he had become a widower. His, his wife had died two years before, leaving him with five children of various ages. His wife, Fanny, died accidentally in a fire. She accidentally lit herself on fire. Um, and he tried to save her. He woke up from a nap and he tried to save her. He could not save her. And he seriously burned himself in the process so badly that he couldn't attend her funeral because he was recovering from his own burns. As a matter of fact, the burns to his face were so severe that he grew a beard for the rest of his life to hide the burns on his face. At the same time, while he wrote these words on Christmas Day in 1863, his oldest son, Charlie, was recovering from a severe bullet wound to his shoulder because he was a soldier in the Union Army. So this is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about all of his current and past troubles as he writes these words on Christmas Day. And two of his famous poem's original stanzas are not sung nowadays, uh, if you got the handout, you, you'll notice these, but we never sing these two, ver these two stanzas. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The sound of Frank Sinatra's stirring voice and the taste of our family's traditional Christmas cookies cannot erase our losses. We can try and forget about them for two weeks, for three weeks, but they don't erase our trouble. Longfellow, like many Americans then and now, was searching for meaning in the midst of his troubles while he wrote those words. That's why we have those words, because he didn't forget his troubles. 
his America wondered, what is God doing? What is God doing in this civil war of ours? Today's America probably wonders, well, since God was declared dead by Time Magazine in the 1960s, what are we supposed to be doing with the world that we have inherited? Because even today, 160 years after Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that poem, cultural, uh, racial, and class conflicts still continue in our own society and around the world. Hatred is strong in places like the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. American colleges are filled with strife. Um, the political divides in our society are, are, are seem stronger and more intense than they were uh, even just 20 years ago. 160 years later, despite our progress, people still wonder, peace on earth? Really? Goodwill to men and women and citizens everywhere? Really? And in despair, he went on to write, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'd like to try and say today that the existence of our trouble does not nullify the Christmas message. The existence of our trouble actually supports the reason for the Christmas message. The hope of Advent is greater than the hope, I'm sorry, the hope of Advent is greater than our troubles. And that's what I want to meditate on today. Trouble is real. Do not ignore it. Do not neglect it. Do not forget it. Trouble is real, but other things are also real. And other things are older than our troubles. Justice and love among them. And those are the two things I want to talk about today. I want to highlight two aspects of the prophecy Caitlin read out of Isaiah chapter 42. Two aspects of that prophecy that reveal hope for our troubles. The first thing is that Jesus Christ does not get discouraged or weary. And the second thing is that Jesus has a heart for troubled, hurting people. He does not get weary or discouraged, and he has a heart for you in your troubles. So the first thing, Jesus doesn't get discouraged or tired by what he sees in the world. Everything we're reading in the news, everything we're experiencing in our families and in our lives, he is not discouraged or wearied by any of it. He cares deeply, but he's not discouraged or weary. Look at the words of the prophecy. Isaiah 42, uh, 42, verse 1, Behold, the Lord says, my servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in verse 4, he will not grow, weir- he will not grow faint or be discouraged, Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, that means all the islands and all the continents far away from ancient Israel, and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah lived in a century when the threat of the Assyrian Empire haunted the Jews. 
Everybody in the Middle East and that part of the world was afraid of Assyria. Everybody hated the Assyrians. Just read Jonah. If you want to see how much Assyria was feared and hated, read the story of Jonah. And they were feared and hated for a very good reason. They were ruthless in their conquests of other people. And they would come into your nation and they would destroy everything there and then they would take the people of your nation and they would repopulate them in another part of the world so that they would lose their sense of identity and their sense of culture. And they would repopulate your nation with people from another part of the world. So they were feared and hated. But, Isaiah said, the servant of the Lord, this coming servant with the Spirit of God upon him, God's chosen one, would prevail, ending in justice when he came. But the servant was going to come twice. They didn't know that in Isaiah's day. But the servant of the Lord, history reveals, and the New Testament reveals, would come twice. First, in his incarnation, his human birth. Second, in what is called the parousia, his second coming. That's why we refer to Christmas time as Advent, because it means the coming of something or the coming of someone. Jesus will judge every act, every person, every institution, every nation. And he will also comfort and heal and vindicate those who hope in him. So you and I get discouraged. We get weary. We get tired of our troubles and of humanity's troubles. We get weary and tired and frustrated to the point of either outrage on the one hand or despair on the other hand. Human beings, human leaders, and human institutions, uh, we, we kind of fall off the cliff in two general ways. We either try and take control in our despair and weariness, or we try and take off. We either try and take control or we try and take off. And this is the sinful condition. This is the human condition of being spiritually nearsighted. The New Testament authors would call it. Spiritual nearsightedness, where you don't have God's perspective on what's happening all around us. Without God's perspective, what's going to rule your thinking and your soul is the chaos that you see. You can only see what's in front of you. You can only see what's happened in your life. You can only see what's going on in current events. And you cannot get uh, an angle on God's perspective. It's called spiritual nearsightedness. And actually, the rock band U2 in the year 2000 recorded a, a great song that confesses this aspect of the human condition. Oh, you know, I should have I showed you this. So let's go back a second. The concept of prophecy in the Old Testament and I was kind of referring to this, the idea of the Lord's servant coming twice. When you read a prophecy in the Old Testament, there's always a, a near fulfillment to that prophecy and a far off fulfillment to that prophecy. Though it can be at the same time true, that's what, what is being prophesied will have a, a, a closer impact in human history and a more far off distant impact in human history. I, I meant to put that image up before but I want you to listen to this U2 song because here's what happened. 
Here's what happens. When all you're focused on is the chaos and the trouble around you, you are spiritually nearsighted. And God's promises seem to not be getting any traction in the world or in your life. And so you're not able to see that distant fulfillment of the promises that God is making. You can only see what's close to you. So you two sang in 2000, when there's all kinds of chaos and everyone is walking lame, you don't even blink now, do you? Or even look away. This is Bono singing to Jesus. You don't even blink, do you? You don't even look away. So I try, and here's the confession. So I try to be like you, try to feel it like you do, but without you, it's no use. I can't see what you see when I look at the world. He's confessing his own spiritual nearsightedness. So when you are discouraged and you are tempted to resort to outrage or the opposite, you're tempted to resort to despair, you must broaden your vision. You must put on that, you must put on that spiritual lens that allows you to not only contemplate what is happening all around you, but contemplate on what God has promised to those who put their hope in him. And here's how we broaden our vision. Three simple ideas. This isn't magic, and it's not that hard to understand. Read the Old Testament prophets. Read the prophets because they declare to you God's promises of what he is planning to do in human history. Also read the New Testament Gospels because the Gospels record how Jesus fulfilled those promises in part. Not fully, in part. And finally, read the New Testament letters. They proclaim how Jesus will fulfill God's promises completely. Old Testament, prophecy, uh, Old Testament prophets reveal to you those promises the Gospels reveal how Jesus fulfilled them in his incarnation, and the letters, especially uh, what Paul said and what Peter and John say and, and what John said in the book of Revelation, will proclaim how Jesus will fulfill them completely and finally. Having a truly biblical perspective will help us avoid either outrage or despair. Despair is a form of unbelief. Did you know that? When I am in despair, I am practicing unbelief. I believe in my despair that Christ will not right all wrongs. And it's just a silly little example from the holiday American Christmas culture. But when you think of Christmas vacation and you think of Clark Griswold, on Christmas Eve, he, what happens? He, his relatives are driving him crazy and, you know, he, he, he has the best intentions. He's going to have a great holiday, and, and his relatives are driving him nuts. And then the nail in the coffin for him is he doesn't get a Christmas bonus. The annual Christmas bonus that he had relied upon, he doesn't get it, and he just, he gives up. He turns to despair. Now, he gets angry, and he loses it, but he's giving up. He's submitting to despair in that moment. Now, here's an example. Now, but I want you to think about his cousin, Eddie. Eddie doesn't resort to despair. He resorts to outrage. Now, he's a smiley, friendly guy, but when you think about it, he resorts to outrage. What does he do? He kidnaps Clark's boss. 
to make him suffer for not giving, him, giving his cousin a bonus. And you see in Clark and Cousin Eddie, it's silly, I know, but they are the extremes of responding to our troubles with either outrage, which is saying, I am the Christ. Since there is no Christ, I'm the Christ. I'm taking injustice into my own hands. Or despair. Christ is not going to fix this. And so I cannot believe and I have to give up. They're both forms of unbelief, despair or outrage. And here's the thing. Unbelief makes us just as culpable as those who are causing the chaos all around us. You see that? You don't have to be a tyrant to be guilty of unbelief. You may not have caused the chaos that is causing you trouble, but to allow that chaos to drive you into despair or to drive you into outrage, you're just as culpable, the Bible says. Because as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. And I'm not trying to dump on any of you right now. If you feel outraged, if you feel like you're giving into despair, I'm not trying to discourage you, it's just the opposite. Because we have to talk about the second thing that Isaiah's prophecy highlights. First of all, we said Jesus does not and will not get weary or discouraged by what's happening in the world. But the second thing is, he has a heart for hurting people. And that means he has a heart for you. Watch this. It says in verses 2 and 3 of that prophecy, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now this is amazing. The same king who will right all wrongs and judge all injustice also has the ability, amazingly, the ability to be gentle to those who are bruised and those who are almost completely snuffed out like a dying candle. That Hebrew word for growing faint. Isaiah says it's a quality that you and I have. We are bruised weeds and faintly burning wicks, but the Lord's servant will not grow faint. We grow dim and we grow weary, but he will not. The same word that describes your problem and your weariness is a word that describes what he is not. While a king judges, a savior heals and forgives and loves. And so the question we each have to ask ourselves is, will I admit that I am a bruised reed? And will I admit that I am a faintly burning Wick, will you admit that? If you will, you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus Christ wants to know and love. Those who admit they are weary, they are on the verge or have been on the verge or are capable of being snuffed out. And he will not snuff you out. And that is why the hope of Advent is greater then our troubles, because Jesus does not get discouraged, and Jesus has a heart for hurting people. He will not grow faint by injustice, but he will heal those who have grown faint by the troubles of this life. 
Because when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God's justice and God's love invaded the human experience. The justice and righteousness of God, the grace and the love of God invaded the human problem. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, it comes by faith. So you need that broader perspective. You need that biblical vision to realize that peace on earth, goodwill to humanity, although it seems like it's not happening, really can be possessed if you confess and believe two things. One, Jesus Christ's justice will someday end all injustices. And second, Jesus Christ's love has saved you from his coming justice. So by faith, we echo that Carol's chiming revolt against despair and outrage, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our God, what is chiming in our heads? We confess that what is ringing in our heads often is the cacophony of chaos and injustice and unfairness and disgust and fear and weariness that we have accumulated as we look at the world, as we read the news, as we consider how we have been treated and as we're even willing to admit how we have treated others. Father, help us to not forget our troubles, but help us to contextualize them in light of who Jesus is, your servant who has come and who is now returning. Father, give us your perspective. We confess our spiritual nearsightedness. Help us to see beyond the immediate. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have promised to do and what will be accomplished when your son returns. We look forward to it with patience, but for now we thank you that he has come, that he has saved us from our sin, and that he promises hope and life and peace, goodwill as we trust in him. May it be so, Father. Amen.